Forty years ago, when I was a theological student, the, quote, crisis of the scripture principle, end quote, as Wolfhard Pannenberg argued in an influential essay, concerned the historical veracity of the biblical testimony to God's saving acts in human history. Minimally, Pannenberg argued, historical veracity could no longer be stipulated dogmatically nor taken uncritically. It was questionable. While his proposal to remedy this crisis by taking history as a whole for Pannenberg from the Big Bang to the coming of the kingdom, take history as a whole up to the eschaton as the self-revelation of God. That was his solution to this problem. But it has not won universal approval. Nonetheless, at the time, his diagnosis of the deep loss of confidence within Christian theology seemed to be spot on. What happens particularly to Protestantism when the scripture principle is fundamentally entered into a state of dubitability, questionability. And to a degree, the problem that Pannenberg put his finger on abides. Attacks on the historical credibility of the Bible are not uncommon even within the churches these days, where the flip resort to a denial of historicity simply replaces theological argument about anything one might disagree with in scripture or its interpretation in the creedal tradition of the gospel, beginning with 1 Corinthians 15 verses three to four. But, the crisis of the scripture principle has shifted focus in recent years. Today, it is the divine violence that seems to be deeply encoded in scriptural narrative, which provokes passionate critique, if not outright denunciation and repudiation. I mentioned this shift in focus at the beginning of my commentary on Joshua, citing the Jewish thinker Zachary Braderman to the effect that after the Holocaust, contemporary Jews wonder whether they can sustain a relationship to the God of the covenant and his Torah not simply for failing to rescue the Jews from the Nazis, but rather because it seems plausible that Western Christian civilization learned ethnic cleansing on up to genocide from the Bible, in particular from the book of Joshua. Now such self-critical examination is not exclusive to Jews. 
I also noted how the former nun, Karen Armstrong, um, wrote a probing book called Fields of Blood. And it chronicles the history of religious violence rooted, now this was her claim, in the intransigence of King Josiah's exclusively monotheistic reform, violently imposed, she says, upon the happy-go-lucky polytheism of ancient Judah. Such critiques of the divine violence of exclusive biblical monotheism have become rather commonplace today, while exclusive monotheism, need I remind you, is the biblical foundation of creedal Christianity. For example, just think of Luther's explanation of the first commandment. So, this presenting problem of the Bible's sacralization of violence is a very serious one. Indeed, we witness echoes of divine violence to this very day. Speaking at his murdered daughter's memorial service, the ultra-nationalist Russian ideologue Alexander Dugan said at the funeral, I'm quoting, our history is a constant battle of light and darkness, God and his adversary. We are now in this and our political situation and our war in Ukraine, but not with Ukraine. This is also part of this war, light versus darkness. Now we in the West could readily respond to Dugan's holy war fanaticism with the standard bromides of secular liberalism. It is of course true, as John Locke put it, at the fonts of political liberalism in his seminal letter on toleration, that quote, everyone is orthodox in their own eyes, close quote a situation leading to a zero-sum conflict over non-adjudicable faith claims. And it is equally true that anyone full of such religious self-certainty easily appropriates scriptures, motifs of divine violence to their cause. Thus the burning question of the current crisis of the scripture principle and its authority in the life of the church in view of its representations of divine violence, is there any alternative to this echoing through the ages of divine violence from the scriptures other than the drastic solution as the Jewish thinker Braderman and the former nun Armstrong indicate, namely repudiation of the one true God, of the covenant and his Bible. Perception of this difficulty, however, is not so new. As I discovered in reading Origin of Alexandria, 
and his third century homilies on Joshua, I saw that he regularly had to deal with the offense caused by the bloody narratives of the book of Joshua. Before studying that Eastern Greek-speaking theologian origin on this question, I had known that Augustine in the Latin-speaking West, for example, had the identical difficulty, especially with the Hebrew Bible Old Testament scripture. For Augustine in the West, as well as Origin in the East, the solution seemed to be the Gnostic doctrine that the God of the Old Testament was a phony, a cruel imposter imprisoning us in this material body beset with irrational passions that generate suffering and violence. And their solution then was to claim that the God of Jesus was a different God entirely who came to rescue our spirits from their imprisonment in this material body filled with irrational and violent passions. But Origen and Augustine came to think differently than the Gnostics with the help of the Apostle Paul. So yes, while the literal text spoke of, now this is a technical term, harem warfare, it's a Hebrew term, harem, which means devoted to destruction, um, um, uh, that the booty in the war must not be taken, taken into possession, but must be utterly destroyed. All that is conquered is to be devoted to the Lord by the way of destruction. That's the literal text in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in the book of Joshua. This literal text they learned from the Apostle Paul was to be taken in the Christian reading of Joshua in the light of the gospel of the servant Christ, the crucified one, the persecuted, not the persecutor, the victim, not the perpetrator as a prophetic metaphor, the story of Joshua then, as a prophetic metaphor indicating another battle by which the old Adam is daily sacrificed in the power of the spirit to the gift of a new creation in Christ. So let's take a deeper look at this Pauline alternative to literalism. Rhetorically, metaphors work by stating a literal incongruity, a literal contradiction. Think, think for example, of Paul's proclamation of Christ, the victor, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. Christ crucified. That's literally a contradiction in terms. That's like saying, Joshua put to the edge of the sword, or David crushed by Goliath. No. A metaphor works by stating 
an apparent contradiction. And the incongruity of harem warfare is, or of divine violence, is that the divine author of life kills. The divine author of life kills. One must abide with the puzzle here. Indeed, the scandal of this apparent contradiction until insight into a jolting innovation of meaning, expressing something new in the world for which no pre-existing vocabulary exists. One must abide with this contradiction, this paradox, this apparent um, incongruity until it yields an unexpected new reference, namely with St. Paul, that Joshua in fact refers to the crucified and risen servant of the Lord who gave himself for us and for our salvation and in this self-giving conquered. Such is the only possible Christian reading of the book of Joshua. Yet therein lies a continuing problem. In speaking of the death of the sinner and the resurrection of a believer, divine violence persists metaphorically with its powerful grip on Christian imagination. As Luther would put it so frequently and so often, God kills in order to make alive. God wounds in order to heal. God makes us sinners in order to make us righteous. God does an alien work in order to do a proper work. God kills in order to make alive. Do we hear that? God kills. Under pressing circumstances, this gospel truth about divine violence for the sake of our true healing can be reliteralized, just as we witness in Dugan's funeral address, sacralizing the Russian aggression in Ukraine as an instance of holy war, of light battling darkness. I stumbled into the authorship of the commentary on the book of Joshua. I was interested in the Brazos series attempting to do renew theological interpretation of the Bible. But by the time I got around to inquiring with the editor, the book I was truly interested in commenting on, the Gospel of Mark, had already been assigned. So I let the matter drop. Sometime later, when the editor was seeking and seeking for someone, anyone, to write the commentary on Joshua, he turned to Sarah Wilson, full disclosure, my daughter. She sat down to read through Joshua and got to about the end of the eighth chapter before she closed her Bible and said, nope, no way. 
Good child that she is, she then suggested to the editor of me to be the one to write the commentary. And that's how it happened. I was actually eager to undertake the assignment just because the aforedescribed crisis of the scriptural principle vis-a-vis -vis divine violence was a theological problem for many reasons that was pressing upon me. And I wanted this opportunity to tackle it. Truth be told, I didn't realize the depths of the problem I was getting into. That old uh, statement about fools rush in where angels fear to tread, that sure applied to me. Not only had I not used the Hebrew I learned in seminary in many years, I discovered a vast literature which I describe in the opening chapter of the commentary on preliminary considerations. And then, of course, as I say in the preface, I was interrupted by, by the stroke I suffered five years ago, and uh, I had to spend a year just uh, learning how to live with my disability, including uh, adopting voice recognition technology to actually compose the commentary. In any case, as I was reading this vast literature on Joshua, what I found was very discouraging. Literalism, literalism occupies the minds of the whole spectrum of commentary. Very few authors, therefore, did not fall on one end or another of these spectrums of modern strategies to deal with the supposedly literal divine violence of the text. Conservatives tended to affirm the historical facticity of Joshua's depiction of divine violence, but mitigate the scandal by confining it to a specific time and place in history if not resorting to the lazy theology affirming that God, being boss, can do whatever God wants. Shut up and deal with it. Liberals tended to deny the book's representation of literal historical facticity, but insist that the canonical status of the book of Joshua continues to license, if not inspire, religious violence, as in so-called Christian nationalism. And it does so with the tyrannical idea that God, being boss, can do whatever God wants, and that we find what God wants in our literalistic reading of the Bible, especially the book of Joshua. I found neither of these common strategies both Interestingly, literalisms, unspiritual readings of the scripture, according to Paul's hermeneutic, both literalisms, I found neither of these strategies helpful even to understand the book of Joshua literarily, catch the distinction between literal and literary. Now, following the precedence of the Apostle Paul, and Martin Luther's hermeneutic based upon it. I looked instead for the gospel of the book of Joshua, 
which actually was read this morning in morning prayer from the first chapter, and found, in, found the gospel in Joshua in that reiterated promise to Joshua and to Israel that it is the Lord who fights for us. The battle is the Lord's, right? That's the gospel. The Lord is the Lord who fights for us. And at length, this gospel light made literary sense of the peculiar doctrine of harem warfare. As I mentioned, that apparently genocidal demand to destroy all life, which otherwise could be gathered from conquered Canaan. But here's the subtlety that has to be grasped. Israel, then, is never to fight for the sake of booty, because it is the Lord who fights for Israel to give this nomadic people a land long promised to it by demolishing the Canaanite city-states with their warlord kings. Thus the extreme demand of Haram to destroy the booty, that is to remove it from any possible human usage, actually undercuts the incentive and the logic of ancient warfare in the ancient Near East. Warfare in the ancient Near East routinely saw the extermination of the adult male fighting population to eliminate resistance. That was routine. But it was for the sake of the enslavement of the surviving women and children, not to mention expropriation of livestock, precious metals, and other resources. Interestingly, ancient war was not very much interested in land acquisition, annexation of land, for its own sake. It rather sought the subjugation of territories which could then become satellites, vassals, colonial resources for the conqueror, whose actual territory, territory was centered at home, that is elsewhere. But nomadic Israel was promised, and thus was to desire only a humble piece of land for its own dwelling on the earth. Implicit in this understanding of harem warfare was the implied threat that if Israel should ever become like those Canaanite city-states with their warlord kings in cahoots with imperial Egypt, which the Lord through Joshua had defeated for Israel, if Israel ever became like them, Israel, too, would fall under the same ban. Just this defection from the covenant with the Lord who fights for Israel to politics as usual is what Joshua sharply warns against, but also shockingly predicts will take place 
in the stunning conclusion to the book. Moreover, in the course of the narrative, in the process of executing harem warfare, the book shows how it unravels as a literal policy. The book of Joshua shows this through its contrast with Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho, who should be exterminated in the battle, but confesses the Lord Yahweh better than the spies whom she protects. In contrast to Achan, son of the tribe of Judah, who sneaks booty from defeated Jericho into his tent and so brings down the wrath of the Lord upon all of Israel. Or again, in the tale of the Canaanite Gibeonites, who hoodwinked Joshua into giving them Canaanites supposedly to be liquidated, hoodwinked Joshua into giving them protected status. And there are many other details reinforcing these central narratives in the book. As a result, the narrative shows how impossible was a pure execution of the demand of harem, harem warfare. As a practical and literal possibility, the policy of extermination self-destructs in the course of the book. What remains, as in the opening and paradigmatic scene of battle at Jericho, is the reality of divine violence. It is the Lord who fights for Israel. That means never Israel who fights for the Lord. So all ensuing appropriations of harem warfare, which transform it from a free and sovereign and indeed miraculous divine action and turn it into a religious ideology of holy war at the disposal of human, all too human political machinations and calculation and aggression fall under its very ban. Although I did not treat it in the commentary, the sad story of King Saul in 1 Samuel corroborates this interpretation. Saul falls out of divine favor when, impatient for the arrival of the prophet Samuel prior to battle, he undertakes the sacrifices preparatory to warfare in place of the absent prophet. And he rashly makes vows that he cannot keep in order to motivate his warriors onto victory. The first king of Israel acts according to ancient Near Eastern understandings of warfare in accord with politics as usual by ignoring the theological meaning of harem warfare represented by the prophet Samuel. 
In turn, he represents the memories, he represents the temptation to transform memories of the Lord who fought for Israel into a convenient religious ideology sanctifying its own stratagems of violence. Indeed, fascinating it is to notice that Saul is um, condemned because he slaughtered the very Gibeonites whom Joshua had protected in a futile attempt to perform the very liquidation which the book of Joshua has shown to be the divine work alone and thus unworkable as a human political policy. Shown to be unworkable, that is, when we read carefully, textually, and literarily, rather than as literalists do, that is, to read in the light of the gospel message of the Lord who fights for us. None of this contextualization exonerates the divine violence of the text. I want to put the stress on that. The scandal remains and abides. In the book of Joshua, it is God who kills with the occasional employment of the armies of Israel, but sometimes also against the armies of Israel. It is not that Israel fights for the reputation and honor of its deity in the book of Joshua, but on the contrary, the Lord of the covenant who fights on behalf of his chosen people. One of the central episodes in Joshua is the appearance, suddenly Joshua seems to be transported into the midst of Jericho. And there he stands before this mysterious figure, this warrior, and he bows down knowing that it is some kind of phenomenon, some kind of vision. And it's a threatening posture. The, uh, the prince appears to be holding a sword. And Joshua, after bowing to him, says, Whose side are you on? Are you on our side or on Jericho's side? And the figure replies, neither, neither. Yahweh fights his own battles to which Israel is conscripted. And that remarkable response to Joshua's question is testimony that the greatest sin that can be committed is to transform the Lord who fights for Israel into us warriors fighting for our deities, that is to say, for our idols. Do you remember that little parable of Jesus? We just heard it a couple of Sundays ago. What king would go out to war without first counting the cost? In the paradigmatic battle of Jericho, Joshua, in unstrategic compliance with obedience to Torah, in the first instance lays his entire army, army prostrate before the enemy by having them circumcised. 
Then he reveals his military strength to the watching enemy with a seven-day liturgical parade around the city. And he mops up only after the mighty deed of the Lord deed of the Lord collapses Jericho's vaunted defenses down upon themselves in a heap. Now if you are wondering what king would in faith count on that kind of divine work in going into a war of aggression? Maybe Putin did. I, I can't understand him. But that bewilderment you're experiencing is is exactly the point of the book of Joshua. You see, Joshua is not a king, and he does not want to become a king. The Lord, through Joshua, kills kings. The title that is awarded to Joshua is Servant of the Lord, foreshadowing the great text of Isaiah chapter 53. And in this very way, Joshua, the figure of Joshua in the book, is a type of the servant of the Lord who is to come, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, and lay down his life a ransom for many. You see, it is in just this way that the God of Israel continues to fight for us and summons summons us in turn to combat. To be sure, combat not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. So Martin Luther drew the conclusion in his precious little treatise of 1530, admonition concerning the sacrament. Now these are a series of quotations from Luther. Truly the devil is still a prince in the world, and I have not eluded him. As long as I am in his principality, he is a threat to me. For he can drive believers to unbelief, despair, blasphemy, and hatred of God. He can assail us with great spiritual temptations, and thus exercise us in our faith. So, just as God also permitted several kings and princes to remain here and there in the vicinity of his people Israel, so that they might learn to wage war and thus remain accustomed to war. For God's word is almighty, therefore faith and the spirit are busy and never resting, but must always be active and engaged in combat. Consequently, the word of God must not have insignificant, but the most powerful foes against it, against whom it can gain honor according to its great might. These four companions, the flesh, the world, death, and the devil, are such powerful foes. Therefore, Christ is called Lord Sabaoth, that is, a god of warfare, or a god of hosts, who always makes war and is engaged in combat in us." End quote. The grace of God in Jesus Christ 
is not a lazy blessing on the world the way that it is. Still so sick with pride and despair, aggression and defeatism in its grim cycles of literal violence and counterviolence. But the God of love is against what is against love. Really, really against. The grace of God in Christ is militant. Did you notice that? Singing a mighty fortress is our God this morning? Did you notice the militancy of Luther's imagery? The grace of God in Christ is militant such that in the combat of faith, we are not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, just as in the cross of Christ, God overcomes his own righteous wrath to find a way to a righteous and holy mercy, as Luther was wont to say, for real, not fictitious sinners. Now, such a dialectical view of grace is of course always in danger of simplistic reliteralization. As I introduced above, citing the example of Alexander Dugan. But we could also include here the very Martin Luther who wrote the precious words that I have just quoted. As Fulker Lapine has shown, the embattled Martin Luther adopted the human, all too human posture of being a warrior for God against Pope and Emperor, but also peasant and Jew, and indulged in the most disgusting rhetorical violence, inciting political violence. We Lutherans can see this, this failure of Martin Luther today and repudiate it. But in the process, there is no evading the biblical problem of God who in fighting for us kills in order to make alive. The problem of divine violence abides in the New Testament. We voice it whenever we sing, this is the feast of victory for our God, especially if we understand what we're seeing. Even metaphorically, divine violence poses profound problems of intelligibility. Also, when we understand this truth spiritually rather than literally, that is, as the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit for us and in us and often against us. Never our work, supposedly, for God. It is God who kills to make alive. And that is the problem, the real God problem. It is not merely that human imagination idolatrously projects a violent God for us to imitate or emulate, though such idolatrous projections should be called out for the sins that they are. <coughs> the point is that it is no solution to the real God problem to preach the emasculated and defanged liberal Protestant stillborn God, as secular political philosopher Mark Lilla has put it, the stillborn God. What is that? In H. Richard Niebuhr's famous words summarizing <coughs> mainstream Protestant preaching 
almost a hundred years ago. This is a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So the concluding question of this first presentation, what becomes of us by way of this Christocentric and cruciform understanding of divine violence. That's what I'll be addressing in the second lecture this morning. Thank you for your attention.